I've known that song for a couple of years, and I've taken that song to the Lord in my worship time. And uh, those of you that, that sing in the church, the special music, I'd encourage you to go through those songs that you're going to sing and pray through them. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of them are prayers. Some of them are testimony songs. Some of them are direct prayers to the Lord. And, and uh, it'd be good to just, you know, take some of those songs to the Lord. And that, you know, of course, talks about his character. And, and I've gone through that several times with the Lord, and, and it's just been a wonderful time. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 13. As I read through the scriptures, there are verses that seem to jump off the page and send a pointed conviction right to my heart. I don't even need to study the verse out before that conviction settles in. And Matthew chapter 13 and verse 58 is one of those verses that does it for me. I don't have to elaborate on it because I already sense the wickedness of my own heart and the sinning of the sin of unbelief. Matthew 13 and verse 58, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Father, I ask that you would purge us of the sins of unbelief, that you would show us, Lord, the the specific areas where we have not been trusting you, where we have not been been obeying you and, and thinking of your character in the right way. I pray, Lord, that you would purge us of these sins of unbelief. May we be people of faith, Lord, as you said, for we walk by faith and not by sight, and that is impossible to please you without faith, or do you do want to do the many mighty works? And I pray that we would not limit you and stop limiting you with our sins of unbelief. Have your way be done in each of our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we enter into this passage, we find Jesus has uh, just uh, finished speaking in the Sea of Galilee. And, and when, I, uh, when I think about the Sea of Galilee, my, I already have pictures in my mind because I've been there. One of the greatest gifts I've ever been given was a trip to Israel. Uh, my wife and I were both able to go to Israel, and it changed our lives. It changed the way we read the scriptures because what we read uh, is become sight. And someday, uh, all that we've read, you know, revelation and things and, and about Christ, it's going to be sight. Our faith will become sight. And I've uh, been to this town of Nazareth, and this is Jesus coming back from the Sea of Galilee, coming into his earthly hometown, Nazareth, where Joseph is from. And he enters in on a Saturday, the Sabbath. This is their time for their church service. Now, we don't meet on Saturdays for church uh, anymore because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 20 verse 7 uh, changed all of that. Then this time though, as they gather, there's going to be a guest. But they know this man. Uh, they've seen his family. They recognize him. They grew up among him, among them. But when he leaves, there will be a different reaction. They had the sin of unbelief. They didn't believe that Christ was who he is. And there are those today who do not believe in Christ and have heard some things about Christ, but they have the sin of unbelief. And sometimes I, uh, the Lord convicted me some years ago that, that as an evangelist, uh, this is my uh, ninth year, uh, almost in July, is going to be 10 years in evangelism. And uh, pastor's already mentioned a little bit about inviting us back and and I'm so thankful for that because out of the 10 years we've been in evangelism, this would be the first church that's ever invited us back. 
No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and uh, one of uh, uh, pastor's sons said that to me one time. He says, Brother Schmidt, did churches ever invite you back? And I said, you're the only ones. Really? Oh, no, you know. But, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm so thankful to be in evangelism. And, and when I started in evangelism, I was treated like pulpit supply. And that's what I, I felt like. But God hasn't called me to be pulpit supply. God's called me to be an evangelist. An evangelist, I, I would find myself being a thermometer. That whatever the temperature of the church is, that's where I would go. God hasn't called me to be a thermometer. God's called me to be a thermostat, to set the temperature. The evangelist is a calling that is a thermostat calling. But even closer than that, as a Christian, we're not to go around with the status quo of even American Christianity. God hasn't called us to American Christianity. You say, well, I'm just going to compare ourselves with some of the other churches or some of the other Christians. No, we're not to compare ourselves among ourselves. And we're not called to American Christianity. We're not to be a a thermometer and go with whatever the, the status quo is in America. No, God's called us to biblical Christianity. God's called us to be a thermostat, to set the temperature. And so often, though, we go with the status quo and we look at the circumstances that we see and the people that we're with to dictate the kind of Christianity that we have. But what if God wants to do more? What if God is calling us into a a deeper prayer life, a deeper walk with Him? What if He's wanting, we're seeing some mighty works, but what if He's really wanting to do the many mighty works in our lives? We look here in verse 58, and He did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You know, I'm going to pick it up on verse 53, then we'll hit verse 58 again. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished. They didn't realize who was there. And they said, whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. And that just, oh, that hurts. Uh, how could you be offended in Christ when nobody loves you more? Nobody wants what's best for you more than him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This word he, uh, and this, uh, and the, in this sentence, these two letters represent the God of eternity. This is the Messiah in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, 6. This is the same child that is born unto us. A son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. What's his name? Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And it is this one in Isaiah, all right, in uh, Matthew 13, 58, that fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53 and verse number five. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, this is the creator of the heaven and the earth. This is the God who, by whom all things are held together, they consist. This is the God of all ages, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, 
uh, from time past uh, to time right now to time throughout eternity. This is the one who every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. This is the God who is omniscient and that He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent and that He's all-present and that He's omnipotent, that He's all-powerful. The one who said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. The great I am. The one whose very name is, is said in Revelation 19 and verse 11, faithful and true. The Lamb of God, which is going to take away the sins of the world. The one who will die upon the cross, shedding his blood for our sins. And the one that will show more power than any who has ever gone before him or since. And that is resurrection power. This God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, this is the second time Christ is coming back into his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth of the first time, they rejected him, but he came back. I'm so glad God's the God of the second chance. I'm so glad God's the God of the third chance, the fourth chance, the fifth, and so on. Uh, just as pastor said, you know, long-suffering. If I were God, I would have given up a long time ago on me. <laughs> but I'm thankful for his long suffering. And Christ comes back to this town of Nazareth. This is his hometown. They were astonished. They were struck with amazement at the words of Christ. When's the last time you were astonished at the word of God? I think of the two on Emmaus Road as they were walking with Christ. They didn't realize it was Christ. And, and afterwards they said, did not our hearts burn within us? Oh, when revival comes to your heart and mind, the Word of God will burn in our hearts. We'll be struck with amazement. God's Word will be so precious and so important to us uh, when, when revival comes into our hearts. Here, they, they didn't realize it was the King of all ages. They didn't realize that it was Christ, the promised Messiah that was coming in, and they had the sin of unbelief. Now, this town of Nazareth, uh, I went there. Uh, we uh, we walked on the same streets that Christ uh, would have uh, walked on. Now, uh, one of my friends says, now you don't really walk where Jesus walks, you run where Jesus walks, because there's so many things to see, and that trip is so busy. Uh, but I remember being there in Nazareth, and you know what's there? Nothing. <laughs> it's all demolished. I mean, there's there's no businesses, there's no commerce, it's just, it's it's gone. And I believe that it's part of the judgment of God. And that uh, they rejected Christ. And so he rejects them. And that they had this sin of unbelief. I was, every year I asked God to give me a verse that I could make as a theme verse for the year. And I was praying uh, uh, the beginning of the year. I was at my sister's house in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And, and I was studying through this verse. And I was pouring in every day. I would come to the devotional time and I would just focus on one word every day. Uh, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, what is the sin of unbelief? How do we define this? Uh, well, a belief is what you accept to be as true. But the sin of unbelief is rejecting what God says is true. The sin of unbelief is rejecting what God says is true. Unbelief is the primary cause of the noise in your soul. You do not yet see God as more than enough and for you. God withholds his power because of the sin of unbelief. And yet the church, in order to maintain credibility with the, with the world, has to have the power of God. People vainly imagine that 
they can go quite nicely without God, uh, that he is in effect expendable. God is not optional, but essential. God is not expendable, but we are. Uh, some people uh, think, well, if I don't do this, this certain ministry in the job, and, uh, you know, this, this ministry in the church, it will just fail. And, and some pastors, they'll say, uh, I've heard them say in times, you know, if I ever left this church, this church would fold. And I think to myself, well, God's bigger than you. And, uh, and, if, and I've been around long enough that, that uh, if, if God wants a church to stay open, he's got somebody else. <laughs> he's got someone else that, that he can use. And as I was working on this, studying this out, uh, God was working on some things in my life personally about the sin of unbelief. And, and I got to that, uh, you know, I think of the, the conviction of, of the sin of unbelief. But you know what word convicts me more than, than the word unbelief? Is the word there. He did not many mighty works there. The town of Nazareth. He passed on that town and went to another group of people where he could do the many mighty works. God's called me to be an evangelist. That calling has never left. It's only intensified. Uh, you say, what's a calling? Uh, the difference between a calling and a burden. A burden is temporary. A calling is consistent. You can have a burden, but it'll go away. A calling, you can't get rid of it. And, that's, and, and just as I mentioned before, you know, you have these missionaries and they feel called to their mission fields. That's the same thing with me. I'm called to be an evangelist. And that calling has, has never left. Everything I've done has always been to go and to be that evangelist. And, and then I think about evangelists. Now, I don't know how many evangelists that you know of. Uh, I know of, of many. Uh, there used to be, though, uh, two to 3,000 evangelists that would meet in Winona Lake for a Bible conference in the 20s and 30s. Uh, there were many evangelists across America. Today, uh, there's, there's, uh, I've got a list of several hundred evangelists, and that's a wide circle that I know of. And, and, uh, and there's, uh, there's such a dearth for an evangelist, and we need the, the confrontational voice of the evangelist. He is a gift to the church, Ephesians chapter 4. He is a gift to the church, and, and uh, a lot of times that gift is not used in churches. And, and, and so uh, God's called me to this, this, this uh, uh, field of evangelism, but a lot of evangelists are back east. A lot of evangelists are based in the Midwest or back east. Now, there's reasons for that. It's cheaper. The, the churches are closer together and, and uh, more churches out there. There's hardly any evangelists out west. Uh, I don't know of any in Nevada. I think I know of one in Oregon, and I don't know of any in Washington State. Uh, I think I know about one or two in Arizona, and uh, there's about three or four of us in California. Uh, John Getch and uh, another guy, Paul Marchand, and then uh, another man just started, Jordan Gilrith, and and uh, and so that's it. And and I think to my, you know, I grew up in Sacramento, uh, you know, California. My heart is out west. I, I, you know, I went to school in North Carolina. My wife's from Georgia, and I go to those churches back east, and I and I love the history of them, but uh, but sometimes they're just stuck in a rut. And here, I feel like out west, we're on a pioneering ministry. Uh, this is the front lines. This is where I want to be. And I enjoy going back east and all of that, but my heart's out west. And I think, well, evangelists aren't based in California. I mean, that, that, you know, who's, who's, uh, gotten started in evangelism in California? And the last one was, I guess, well, John Getch was already, uh, established, but I guess the last one would have been Palmer Sean and retired Navy officer. And so I'm thinking, how in the world will I ever be an evangelist out of California? Well, Megan, uh, my wife, she uh, worked a job and worked at the 7-Up Bottling Company. And, and, uh, and, I, and God, at one point, just pulled the trigger and said, you're going. You're, you're, you're going into evangelism. And uh, I, I said, okay, let's go. And, but Megan had her job. And, and we go to these churches. You know, they take law of offerings and things. And, and, uh, and so I'm trying to get, you know, meetings and whatnot, praying. And, 
God was opening up doors, but I'm, I was hoping to build the ministry of the evangelist to where uh, it was uh, consistent enough to where we could break off Megan's job. I was trying to, to figure out the evangelist's finances. And, uh, and about two or three years ago, when I was going through this verse, uh, I was at a conference and three different evangelists in three different sessions said, you're not going to be able to figure out the finances of the evangelist. It's a walk of faith. And I'm trying to think of the, you know, how am I going to, uh, going to, you know, do all of this and break off Megan's job because there's no way that we can live off of my income. And I was struggling with the sin of unbelief. God was calling us to break off her job, but it was a step of faith. It was a big step of faith. It was a consistent step of faith. And I was pouring in all the impossibilities. Oh, California, it's, it's so expensive. Uh, California, it's so big. Uh, evangelist, they, they tell me, I don't, we don't have a truck and trailer. I'm trying to stay away from that as long as I can. But they tell me that they spend over $10,000, all of them spend over $10,000 a year in fuel. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm thinking, man, how in the world is this ever going to happen? And I'm pouring on the sin of unbelief. And I'm sitting in my sister's uh, house upstairs all by myself. And I'm, and I'm pouring in on that word, did it not do many mighty works there. And God so clearly spoke to my heart and said, Tim, if you don't trust me, if you don't step out on faith, I'm going to pass on you. I'm done. I'm going to pass on you. You stay in your sin of unbelief, I'm done with you. I said, God, I don't want you to pass on me. I don't want to, I want to be used to you. I don't want to stay stuck in my sin of unbelief. God so got a hold of my heart through that and changed my life and and as I had mentioned before, uh, another preacher was praying with me and that uh, changed my prayer life when he began to thank God in advance that God was going to take care of us, like, like God knows our needs or something. And, uh, that God has like, you know, all of the ability to provide for us. And, and, and it just changed my thinking. And he encouraged me. He says, Tim, spend a full day not asking God for anything. Just thank him. Thank him in advance if you need something. Maybe you got a situation coming up and say, God, thank you that you're going to give me wisdom about the situation. And, uh, and it was kind of difficult to do, but I've done that uh, several times. Just not ask God for anything that com- completely changed my mindset. A lot of times we pray in question marks when we need to be praying in exclamation points. Or we need to say, God, thank you that you're going to do this, that you are this great, that you are the God of the impossible. There's a lot of atheism in Christians. We live a lot of our lives as if God does not exist. We live as if we're practical atheists. And God wants us to get out of our sins of unbelief. I believe that God is wanting to do something here. I know that he's worked in this church, and it was my first time hearing things. And and uh, But God's not done. I was telling the guys in prayer, it would blow your mind if you knew God's plans for your for your church here. I don't know them. Pastor probably doesn't even know them, you know, but God's wanting to do many mighty works. But you stay in your sin of unbelief, God could pass on you. God doesn't want to pass on you. He wants to do many mighty works. Oh, you've seen some, and he did do some mighty works there in, in, in uh, Nazareth, but he wanted to do more. You've seen God do some great things here, but he wants to do more. He's not done. He's not done here. He's not done with us. He's not done with your family. The sin of unbelief defies God's character. It dishonors his glory, and it is the root of all sin. 
We see that it defies his character. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Charles Spurgeon, who uh, had a message on this, the same thing, the sin of unbelief. He said, unbelief has more phases than the moon, more colors than a chameleon. Common people say that about the devil, that he's seen in one, sometimes in one shape and sometimes in another. And he says, I'm sure this is true of Satan's firstborn child, unbelief, for its forms are legion. A fearful form of unbelief is that which keeps men from coming to Christ, which leads the sinner to distrust the ability of Christ to save him, to doubt the willingness of Jesus to accept such a great transgressor. But the most hideous of all is the traitor. In his true colors, blaspheming God, madly denying his existence, infidelity, deism, atheism, are all the ripe fruits of this pernicious tree. They're the most terrific eruptions of the volcano of unbelief. Unbelief has become full stature when putting off the mask and laying aside the disguise. It profanely stalks the earth, uttering the the rebellious cry, No God! Striving in vain to shake the throne of the divinity by lifting up its arm against Jehovah. And an arrogance would snatch from his hand the balance and the rod, rejudge his justice, and be the God of God. That's the sin of unbelief. And you don't say that in in so many words, but that's the way that you live. God, you're not going to be in control of my life. You're not going to be the God of me. I'm going to do what I want to do. He went on to say, is it not a sin for a creature to doubt the word of its maker? Is it not a crime or an insult to the divinity? For me, an atom, a particle of dust, to dare to deny his words? Is it not the very summit of arrogance and the extremity of pride for a son of Adam to say, even in his heart, God, I doubt your grace. God, I doubt your love. God, I doubt your mercy. God, I doubt your power. He said, oh, sirs, believe me. If you could roll all sin into one mass, if you could take murder and blasphemy, pride and lust, adultery, fornication, and everything that is vile, and unite them in one vast globe of black corruption, they would not even equal the sin of unbelief. It is the root of all sin. It defies God's character. It dishonors His glory. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20 Now unto him that is able, what is God able to do? Exceeding abundantly above all that we ask and all that we think. According to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I mentioned that I was on the six-year family plan uh, for Bible college, and I got a four-year degree, but uh, in some classes I failed. One of those was Greek. One of the last things we were learning in Greek was how to diagram Greek sentences. And uh, I, I never really enjoyed diagramming English sentences, but, uh, you know, diagramming the Greek sentence, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 is one sentence. What I just quoted, that's one sentence. I mean, to diagram all of those adjectives that are, that are used to describe what God can do, and of course, Paul's trying to describe the indescribable. He's trying to define the indefinable. And he's just piling one word on top of another. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to try to diagram uh, this, this sentence in Greek. Now, I'm thankful in the day in which we live, I've got a Bible program now that has every verse diagrammed in Greek. 
And so I looked it up and I thought, okay, if all these words, what's the main thought? What's the main thrust of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21? And the main word, what everything revolves around is doxa, glory. Why would God do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think? So that he would receive the glory that is due to his name. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Spurgeon went on to say, unbelief dishonors God. Every other crime touches God's territory, but unbelief aims a blow at his divinity. It impeaches his veracity, denies his goodness, blasphemes his attributes, maligns his character. Therefore, God, of all things, hates first and chiefly unbelief wherever it is. Faith fosters every virtue. Unbelief murders everyone. Thousands of prayers have been strangled in its infancy because of the sin of unbelief. Unbelief has been guilty of infanticide. It has murdered many of infant petition. Many a song of praise would have swelled the chorus of the skies, has been stifled by an unbelieving murmur. Many a noble enterprise is conceited in the heart, had been blighted before it could come forth because of the sin of unbelief. Many a man would have been a missionary who would have stood and preached his master's gospel boldly, but he had the sin of unbelief. Unbelief robs God of his glory. His excellent, uh, his unique excellence is tarnished in our view. He becomes in our mind no better than the cre- creatures he has made. Weak, untrustworthy, unloving, unkind, and unwise. And we have exchanged the truth for the lie when we sin the sin of unbelief. To reject the truth is to believe the lie. You see, this is the root of all sin. There is no sin as great as the sin of unbelief. There is no sin as great as the sin of unbelief when it comes to Christ and damnation. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What's the key? Believing in Christ. For God sent not a son of the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. And I say hallelujah to that part. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Who do you know that's condemned already? John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, my father-in-law, he was in the army, and I know some things about the army, but I've never been in the army. I don't know the army. I know about the army, but I don't know the army. There are people that say they, they know some things about God, but they don't know God. They have a head belief. They, they believe in him like uh, Jesus Christ, like George Washington. They have a head belief, and the difference between heaven and hell is just 18 inches. From the head belief to the heart belief. They say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe where in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. There is one sin for which Christ never died. It is the sin against the Holy Ghost. There is one uh, one sin for which Christ never made atonement. 
It is the eternal sin of unbelief. Mention every crime in the calendar of evil, and I'll show you people who have found forgiveness for it. But ask whether the man who died in unbelief can be saved. There is no atonement for that man. He is condemned already. You may turn over this whole book, and you will find there is no atonement for the man who died in unbelief. There is no mercy for him. He may, he, had he been guilty of every other sin except for the sin of unbelief, he could have been saved. He could have been pardoned. This is, uh, this is because he has the sin of unbelief. Do you see the, how much God hates the sin of unbelief? This is the one thing that, 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 uh, that takes men to hell, that gives them that eternal, uh, eternal uh, death in the lake of fire. Spurgeon went on to say, he says, let me say here that unbelief in the Christian is of the very same nature of the unbelief in the sinner. Now, for the Christian, it's pardoned. <laughs> but here, God has given us a thousand times, I mean, many ways of His character. And yet, you and I still doubt Him. We still don't, don't trust Him in different areas in our lives. He said, in fact, if there's one more sin that can be more heinous than the sin of unbelief of a sinner, it's the unbelief of the sin. For a saint to doubt God's word, for a saint to distrust God after innumerable instances of his love, after thousands of proofs of his mercy, exceeds everything. In a saint, moreover, unbelief is the root of all other sins. Unbelief is the mother vice. It is the parent sin. And therefore, I say it is the pestilent evil, a master sin. Every sin that you commit is ultimately rooted in the sin of unbelief. Uh, you think of uh, the sin of, of worry. It's emotional atheism. It's as if God doesn't exist. You're not thinking of it with God in view. We have the sin of, of unbelief, and we think that we're trapped in sin. You're saved. You have Christ in you. You're not trapped in sin. You don't have to be the servant of sin. You can be the servant of righteousness. You can walk in victory. That sin that is just taking you time and time again. Don't stay in, in the sin of unbelief. And think that, oh, well, I, there's nothing else I can do. No, you greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. I don't think I've said this yet uh, this week, but there, uh, I was uh, reading about the circus and these elephants that are at, at the circus, and these two-ton elephants, they have this, uh, this chain that, that they put upon their, their leg, and, and, uh, and they uh, have the, the stake, and, and the two-ton elephant could easily rip off that chain. And yet they don't because they have great memory. They remember when they were babies and, and they're trying to pull and get off and they couldn't get off. And they thought, well, I couldn't do it back then. I can't do it now. And they don't realize the power that's within them. Christian, you don't realize the power that's within you. You've got more power behind you than you realize. You can walk in victory. You can walk in victory over bitterness. You can walk in victory over lust. You can walk in victory over anger. You can walk in victory over fear and anxiety and worry and all those other things. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the sin of unbelief traps us in thinking that we're, we, we can't get victory when we can. We have a God that is all-powerful. Sometimes we think our, our circumstances are bigger than God. That was my problem. I had a, a, an evangelist that, I'm an independent Baptist, uh, all of that, and I had an evangelist uh, 
who does uh, Southern Baptist churches and independent Baptist churches. And he was talking to me and he said, Tim, uh, this is the time we were struggling financially. We were just, it was just hard. He says, Tim, uh, you're not going to be able to survive with the independent Baptist. He says, you're going to need the Southern Baptist because they, they have the money in the Southern Baptist. And he says, when my wife and I, we went into evangelism, we, uh, we had our first meeting, we're given the check, and, and my wife opened up the envelope and she said, oh no, we're in trouble. Now I'm thankful that my wife has never said that. Maybe she's thought it, I don't know, but she's never said that. And I began to think, and there was a, a pastor, some of you might know him, uh, Pastor Hedger in Sacramento, about several days before that, he had told me, he says, Tim, don't you compromise. You stay by the stuff, you trust God. And, and those words of that older preacher was, was coming to my mind. And I started thinking to myself, well, you know, isn't God bigger than the independent Baptist? Isn't God bigger than the Southern Baptist? I remember uh, preaching in a church, in, a small church in California, and I, and I was telling about how God had revived a church in Kansas and really revived the whole town, uh, 800 people. It's amazing what God did. And, and I was telling this, this story, and, and the pastor got up and he said, uh, how many of you, when Brother Schmidt was telling that story about that church in Kansas, you thought, well, God can't do that here? And about half the congregation raised their hand. I'm like, oh, great, you know? And then the pastor later on told me, he says, Tim, I asked that question because that's what was in my heart. I thought, well, God did it there, but he can't do it here. Sometimes we think, well, you know, we need someone bigger than God to help us in our church. We need someone bigger than God to help us in our city. We need someone bigger than God to help us in California. By the way, one of, uh, one of our state senators, born-again Christian, he said, you've heard as California goes, so goes the nation. He says, what if God would entrust us with revival? We're in a good position to get revived. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're one of the worst states out there. What if God would entrust us with revival as California goes, so goes the nation? Isn't God bigger than California? Or we say, we need someone bigger than God to, to help us in the United States. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I was praying through this passage uh, the other day. Isaiah chapter 40. And it's time that, that we as God's people hear the call of Isaiah 40 in verse number 9. O Zion, that bring us good tidings. Get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. It is time for the people of God to behold your God. How great He is. How powerful He is. How majestic and how holy He is. Look what He does in verse number 2. Well, verse number 10. All right. Behold, the Lord God will, will come with a strong hand and His arm will rule over Him or rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd, and he shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I was thinking about that, and uh, uh, Megan and I, a couple of months ago, we were the San Francisco coast, and I was looking, we are sitting there watching the, the waves crash against the rocks, and just thinking about the power of the ocean. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, you know, mankind could not stop those waves. You can't, uh, the Marines couldn't stop it. You know, nobody can stop those waves of that ocean. And that's just one section. And then you think of how, how, you know, all the 800 miles of California and the Pacific Ocean. Two years ago, we uh, took a missions trip to New Zealand. And uh, the, the, my missionary friend, Dave Smith, he was so excited for us to come and, and to see a part of, 
of New Zealand where he goes to pray and and it's a, it's a beach area and the ocean, the Pacific Ocean's right there. And, and he's so excited about showing all of this. But I'm not responding like other people have responded. He's like, Tim, you don't seem that impressed. And I said, Dave, I've got the Pacific Ocean at my home. You know, it's just 100 miles away. Uh, I've seen the Pacific Ocean. These same scenes I, I have in California. And then I got to thinking, wait a minute. I just flew 13 and a half hours over the same ocean, <laughs> the Pacific Ocean. God says there in verse number 12, who hath measured the water in the hollow of his hands, the hollow of your hand, that, that part right there, you could hold a little more than a, than a teaspoon. That's the hollow of your hand. In Lake Tahoe, all of the, the, the millions of gallons of water in Lake Tahoe, all of the rivers in California. But he's not talking about just the water in California. It's all the waters. All the oceans in the hollow of his hand. Behold your God. How great he is. How majestic he is. How powerful he is. How big he is. And meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. balance. Who had directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor had taught him? With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? And then get this, behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as a small dust to the balance. Behold, he taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. America's too big for you, God. California's too big for you, God. God, you know what? The nations, you lied when you said that the nations were but a drop in a bucket. That's the sin of unbelief. God, you lied because these nations are so much bigger than you. God, my circumstances are so much bigger than you. I've met a lot of people in my life, and I've gone through some trials and things, but I've met some people that have just gone through some tremendous things, but every single one of them, I can say to them, God is bigger than whatever you will face. God's bigger than any circumstance you'll ever have. Your God is greater and bigger than anything you'll ever face. Our circumstances are not bigger than God. Our city is not bigger than God. Our state is not bigger than God. Our country is not bigger than God. We put him in a box when his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we must labor to find out what's true according to God and resolutely reject any deviation from it and cling to those things that are true about God no matter what is happening. God was working in my heart about that, uh, about passing on me. I'm like, God, I'm gonna ha- I want to have faith. And so uh, I believe it's going to be three years now in August. Uh, we broke off Megan's job. And man, I have been starving ever since. Uh, you know, God's taken care of us. I mean, a thousand times. I mean, just trusting God. I've never let, he's never let me down. I've never regretted trusting God. He's always been there. We were drilled in the evangelist class in college. You look to God to meet your needs, not to individuals or churches. You're not going to be disappointed with God. And it's so true. Uh, I think of, uh, of Don Sisk. He was at a church on Wednesday night and the offering plate went by and and uh, he put in $10 in the offering plate, not realizing that the offering was for him. And, uh, and so uh, he preaches that night at this church. And, and then uh, they get in the car, him and Mrs. Sisk, and, and the pastor had given him the envelope. of, And uh, he opens it up. And you know what was inside? His $10 bill. <laughs> that was it. And, uh, and he, uh, his wife quipped. She says, well, see that? If you would have given more, you would have had a bigger love offering. <laughs> what a great attitude. They knew that, that God was going to take care of them. 
And I know that God's going to take care of us, and, and God's bigger than my circumstances. God's bigger than your circumstances as well. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He wanted to do more. I do not want to know how much I've limited God in my life, but I know he wants to do more. God had us do a tent meeting last year, and I thought, uh, I thought it was like Samson. Go, all right, God, I'm all in. Push these pillars down. I'm going to die with this tent meeting. And uh, I was all in with that tent meeting. And then all of a sudden, everything's collapsed around me, and I'm still alive. And I'm like, okay, Lord, you have something else. God's not done with me yet. God's not done with you. There's some great things God wants to do in, in your life. Let's stop hindering them. Let's stop the sins of unbelief. Let's behold our God and see how great and how magnificent He is. Say, well, how much faith do we need? The Bible says we need the faith as big and as great and as large as a mustard seed. It can move mountains. You just need a little faith. It's not that we need great faith. We just need a little faith. Now, faith honors God, and God honors faith. How do we live the Christian life? The same way we started by faith. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Leonard Ravenhill, uh, I was listening to a message of his this afternoon and was talking about Hebrews 11. And he says, I read Hebrews 11 on my knees and I just begin to weep because they did all of these things, the great things through faith, and we haven't done hardly anything. By the way, in that chapter of Hebrews 11, you have Noah who uh, worked for God and you have uh, uh, you have uh, Enoch who walked with God and you have Abel who worshiped God. And he says, uh, you know, that's not just, just a picture, but it's, it's the priority that it goes worship, walk, then work. We spent time tonight worshiping God. That warmed your heart, I, I'm sure. Things that you thought, oh, yes, Lord, thank you for that. Lord, thank you for that. Oh, God's been so good to us. We need to worship God and I walk with God and then work for God. But we must walk by faith. Hebrews 12, the, the, the next chapter, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're to lay aside every weight. And I believe that there are... Or every one of us have something, one or two things that we, that we really struggle with. One of the things I was telling the, the young people today in chapel, the thing that has, one of my besetting sins has been fear throughout all my life. Now God's given me great victory over fear, but that's just something that's, that has always gotten me, it seems, in, in those earlier years and, and that fear. And, and yet the, the sin is not fear. The sin in context is the sin of unbelief. The, the sin of fear is rooted in the sin of unbelief. I, uh, God's helped me with not a fearing man. I read a book called one time called When People Are Big and God Is Small. So often we have big, we have, we have people big and God's so small and you need to reverse that. No, God is big. People are small. Uh, someone said, uh, uh, it's kind of mind over matter. I don't mind because you don't matter. Uh, and, uh, and really, ultimately, I'm to preach for the audience of one to God. I'm to please God. And so we need to have faith. Lay aside that, that weight, that, that sin of unbelief, and have faith. Faith honors God. God honors faith. It glorifies Him. One of the highlights that we've had in these 10 years, we were in uh, Pleasanton. Uh, some of you know the church, Lighthouse Baptist Church. It's filling in for Pastor Bryson. 
uh, the first time I was at the church, and, and I meet this man, his name's Mike Quinton, and uh, Mike Quinton introduces himself, and he says, hi, I'm Pastor Bryson. I'm like, no, you're not. Uh, I said, I know who Pastor Bryson is, and he says, yeah, I'm just playing with you. He says, but my wife and I are going to take you out to eat tonight after the service, and he says, I'm thinking about going to Sonic. That way you can stay in your car, and we'll stay in ours. And I'm like, man, where did this guy come from? You know, he's kind of the jokester of the church. And, and, uh, and so he says, yeah, I teach a Sunday school class here and things, a popular Sunday school class teacher. And, and so I preached that morning. And, and uh, then that night I preach again. And, and he, uh, he, he doesn't take us to Sonic. We go to a restaurant. And he says, when you preach this morning, I thought, I told my wife, I said, that's, that's it. That's the guy. That's who we've been praying for. He says, and then you preach tonight. And I thought, nope. He's not the guy. And I'm like, what did I do tonight? He said, I've been praying for several years that God would send someone to Mesquite, Nevada to start a church. And he says, I thought you were, the, you were the guy, but then you started talking about your call to be an evangelist. And I thought, nope, that's not the guy. And uh, we began to talk and I'm like, Mesquite, Nevada, you know, uh, where's that at? It's uh, about an hour and a half, two hours east of Las Vegas. You have to go there on purpose. It's near the border of Arizona and Utah and and, uh, and so, uh, he, uh, goes to, on vacation to, uh, Utah and, and uh, passes Mesquite, Nevada, just burdened for that city for someone to start a church. Well, Mike Quinn begins to tell me his story. And he said, I got saved when I was 29 years old, got plugged into church and growing. And he says, you know, working the buses and things. And then he says, I got what people call burned. He says, and I quit. He says, I gave up. He says, Tim, I was out of church for 20 years. He says, six years ago, I found this church online, started listening to the messages, and we started coming back. And he says, oh, it feels so good to have a pastor again. He is a fire captain, retired fire captain. And, and, uh, and he says, I retired and, and I just started volunteering my time at the church. And he says, I love studying the Bible. And, and uh, he says, I became a, a Sunday school teacher. And he says, I volunteer at the church you know, throughout the week, fixing things. But he says, I'm also part of Pastors 100 Club. And I said, well, what's that? And he says, that's where we knock on 100 doors every week. And I thought, oh, that's pretty good. And 71 years old. And, and so he's telling me these different things. And, and as I'm listening to him, I'm in, his, I'm in the passenger seat. And I thought to myself, God, I know you're not, you don't want me, but I think you might want him. Retired, never pastored, 71 years old. I'm thinking these things. And a few minutes later, he says, Tim, about six months ago, I woke up in the middle of the night and I said, okay, God. I'll go. I'll do it. He says, there was such a peace that flood over me. Wife 100% behind him. He says, Brother Tim, we're leaving in two weeks. He says, we just sold our house. We sold our house to a Korean couple who came to our church for some time, but they left because they wanted to start an independent Baptist Korean church. He says, they're going to start that Korean church in our house. And he began to cry. And he says, God's going to even use our house. They're there now. He just turned 74 years old. We saw them. Uh, two months ago, and I uh, went there to Mesquite, Nevada, popped in on their second anniversary, and it was so exciting to see them. And it was just a miracle that they're there. His heart, uh, he told me, he says, Tim, I, I had a, a bit of a heart attack, and, and he says, my heart's working at 30%. But he says, every day, whatever, however many days, whatever God's going to give me, I, I'm going to live it for him. He says, we're here, we already bought burial plots, we're here till death. We're praying for the next guy to come, whoever it's going to be that that would, uh, that would take my place. But, but uh, they've seen people get saved. They've seen people move away. They've seen people come in. And to be at that church, it was a miracle. And here's a man and that, uh, you know, you're retired. I mean, everything should be settled. Uh, and everything got uprooted. Now, financially, they're fine. They didn't go on 
deputation and all of those kinds of things, but they didn't get the prayer support. And if you think about it, pray for them. Mike and Janine Quentin. Uh, and, and they're there and they said, we're going we're gonna to step out on faith. And he says, well, there was a point in my life where I was sitting in, a, in my rocking chair doing a crossword puzzle and I thought, God, you want more out of my life than this. God, I'm all in. Here's a man, 74 years old, that's pastored now for two years, started a church. God wanted to do some mighty works through him. And he says, I'm going to have faith. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to go. And he's doing more with his 30% heart than many of us with our 100% heart. God's doing some great things there. Why? Because of faith. It was right at that time we were breaking off Megan's job, and I thought if they can go, we can do it. We can go. Oh, faith honors God. God honors faith. You see, it's not time to just sit back and relax and let the status quo and say, you know what, I, it's time, you know, he thought it's not time to retire. It's time to, to live for God for the rest of my life for whatever time he gives me. It's time to stop comparing ourselves with American Christianity and get back to being the people that God wants us to be. It's, stop, it's time to stop looking at that Crowder's mountain, of, uh, that thinking that a, a 1,600-foot mountain is a great big mountain, and get our eyes upon a God that is far greater and far higher than we can even fathom. You see, there's no pandemic that can stop the work of God. There's no governor that can govern God. There's no president that can preside over God. There is no tower that is tall enough to overthrow our God. There is no wall that is wide enough to threaten our God. There is no body of water that is big enough to slow down our God. There is no fiery furnace hot enough to consume our God. There is no den deep enough to devour our God. There is no death that is destructive enough to corrupt our God. There is no grave great enough to hold down our God. There is no venom that is vicious enough to paralyze our God. There is no war that is weary enough to tire our God. There is no river that is raging enough to sink our God. There is no sense as seductive enough to seduce our God. There is no opposition that is omnipotent enough to beat our God. There is no problem that is perplexing enough to puzzle our God. There is no storm that is strong enough to stop our God. There is no sorrow that is shameful enough to stifle our God. There is no mind that is magical enough to manipulate our God. There is no trial that is troubling enough to trip up our God. There is no enemy that is enormous enough to overthrow our God. There is no decision that is difficult enough to doubt our God. There is no soul that is too lost to be found by our God. He doesn't just know the way. He is the way. He doesn't just know the answer. He is the answer. He doesn't just have the key to lock door. He is the door. He doesn't just provide the solution. He is the solution. He doesn't just give life. He he is the life. He doesn't just promise the resurrection. He is the resurrection. He doesn't just say he is our savior. He is our savior. You can trust him as your savior. You can trust him with your eternity. You can trust him for your today. Where are you sinning? The sin of unbelief. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.